Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit you might so deeply soften our hearts that as we hear your word you would change us. Uh, Please make us receptive to what you have to say to us. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Matthew 9, 1 to 8. Jesus forgives and heals a paralysed man. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Amen. And just before Steve gets up to preach, uh, I forgot to mention that if you uh, have kids heading out to Christ, you can take them out now. And Jane's handing out some clipboards for the kids too. So thanks. Thank you, Steve. G'day, friends. Let me just pray again briefly, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Father God, help us to see uh, the riches of your grace to us today through your Word. Um, Help us come away Uh, in praise and thanks uh, for all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Needs. Uh, We all have needs, uh, don't we? Uh, Some are simple needs that change day by day, uh, but some are more pressing uh, and some very weighty. What's your biggest need uh, right now? For us, it's a new car. Back in its heyday, our beloved Toyota Camry was a beautiful car in gleaming gold juco. Uh, I've always called it brown, though. Uh, But it's a great car, uh, and it's given us, our family, lots of great, oh, what a feeling, Toyota moments (laughs) over the years. But now, after 340,000 kilometres, it's a tired old car. It burns oil, blows some smoke, has squeaky brakes and so on. Oh, what a feeling has taken on a whole new meaning. And so our dear old Camry, Jane's car, is about to be replaced. What about you? Uh, What big need comes to mind for you? Perhaps it's a material or financial need, um, maybe a relational need for friendship, uh, a lifetime partner, or perhaps your big need relates to your health. Uh, or that of a loved one. The point is we all have needs, great and small. Uh, In our passage today, we meet a man with a very great need. Uh, He's paralysed. Verse 1 picks up where we left off last week. If you were here, you will remember how uh, after Jesus healed two demon-possessed men uh, in spectacular fashion, the townspeople were terrified of him. Uh, and begged him to leave their region, uh, which he does, as we read here in verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. 
Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. Now, we don't know much at all about this man, uh, other than that he's paralysed. Uh, we're not told his name, how old he is, or how long he's been paralysed. Uh, but we do know he can't walk, uh, which in his culture means he's most likely unemployed, with no welfare system uh, like we have. He may have even had to beg for food. And then there was the social stigma. Paralysis and other conditions were often seen to be the direct result of a person's sin. So sufferers were often also social outcasts. But whatever his situation, there's no doubt that if we ask this man what his greatest need was, he'd say without hesitation to walk again. I want to be healed. I want to live a normal life. And so when he hears that a great miracle healer has just arrived in town in Capernaum, the one who's been healing all kinds of sickness and disease, including paralysis, well, of course, he's desperate to get to Jesus. And whether it's he who comes up with the idea or the men carrying him, maybe some friends of his, he gets carried on his mat to Jesus and laid at his feet, full of hope and expectation. And what happens next? Verse 2. When he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said to the man, get up, take your mat and go home. Well, no, he doesn't, does he? That's what we want him to say, don't we? We expect him to say that. But instead, he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was me lying there, looking up expectantly at the only man who seemed able to fix my legs, I reckon I'd be quite dismayed at Jesus' words, probably devastated. I wonder if that's what this guy thought. This Jesus is a bit of a disappointment. It is a surprising thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? It seems a little bit insensitive. After all, as we've read through chapter 8, everyone who came to Jesus with a sickness was healed of that sickness. Nothing more, nothing less. In every case, he did exactly what the people hoped and expected him to do. So when we come to this paralysed man, of course we expect Jesus to heal his paralysis, to fix his legs. But he doesn't, not yet. Why is that? Well, it's not for lack of faith on the men's part. Matthew tells us Jesus saw their faith. So what's going on? Uh, why does Jesus suddenly talk about forgiveness? Well, of course, Jesus sees the big picture, uh, the biggest picture of all. He sees with an eternal perspective. And as he looks down at the man, he sees beyond his obvious physical need, to a deeper and far more pressing spiritual need. The paralysed man's most basic problem is his sin. Sin is essentially living in God's world as if God doesn't exist. Receiving and enjoying all the good things he gives us without a thought for him. And we're all guilty of it. By default, we live that way, all of us. Uh, it's tragic. 
because he's created us to enjoy an intimate relationship with him. But we've rejected him and wronged him, turned our backs on him and walked away from that relationship. That's sin. A deep, in-ground attitude that works itself out in all kinds of ways, all kinds of sins. The numerous attitudes and actions uh, that we're all guilty of. And they separate us from God and they often harm the people around us. And so here, Jesus meets this man's deepest need first. He forgives his sins. If he only healed the man, he'd stay separated from God for all eternity if his sin wasn't dealt with. Jesus would have only addressed a symptom of sin, not the core issue. Jane's poor old Camry is showing symptoms, including smoke from the exhaust. After 340,000 Ks, it's uh, burning some oil. So to reduce the amount of oil it burns and the embarrassing puffs of smoke, uh, I've been putting thicker oil in it, high viscosity oil. But of course, that only treats the symptom. Uh, the core problem is much deeper down, it's the wear deep inside the engine. The only real solution uh, is a new engine, uh, which of course these days means a new car. The symptoms of sin uh, in our fallen and broken world are horrific and far-reaching. The Bible makes clear that all sickness and sorrow, pain and suffering, everything that's wrong in this world are outworkings of this deep universal problem of sin. And here Jesus chooses to deal with this man's deepest need first. So he says to him, your sins are forgiven. This is so helpful for us too, isn't it? Jesus has the true perspective. And he helps us to see that what we often perceive as a, the greatest need for ourselves and others actually isn't. That the deepest need of each and every one of us is to be forgiven of our sin. Well, Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness for this man raises a big question. Who can forgive sins? It's the question that lies at the heart of this little account, really. Um, Jesus' words about forgiveness were no doubt surprising to everyone watching on. But to some of them, they were also blasphemous. Have a look at verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Teachers of the law, or scribes as they're also called, were experts in Old Testament Jewish law and tradition. Um, these guys knew their scriptures well. Very, very well. And their charge of blasphemy is a serious one. Blasphemy, by definition, uh, means to slander God, to insult him uh, or show contempt for him. But here, these teachers have expanded blasphemy to in include Jesus' claim to have done something that only God can do, forgive sins. It's not quite so explicit here in Matthew's Gospel, but Mark and Luke in their Gospels both include the teacher's words, 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? But is that the case? If our sins are primarily against God, is he the only one who can forgive sins? Or can a third party forgive on his behalf? Let's say my lovely wife Jane is running late for church. Now she hates missing church. So she's in a big hurry driving here. And she comes screaming in the car park in her brown Camry, smoke trailing behind. She slams on her squeaky brakes and runs straight into the back of Duncan's Kluger. She's upset, she's feeling terrible, and she comes rushing in here and calls out, Duncan, I'm so sorry, I've just run into your car. But before Duncan can get a word out, Dale yells out, It's okay, Jane, I forgive you. <laughs> now, it's an entertaining scene to imagine, I, I know, but it hopefully illustrates the point. Of course you can't forgive someone for wronging someone else, even if it is an accident. Only the person who's been wronged can forgive. Only they have the authority to do so. And since our sins are primarily against God, only God can forgive us. So on one hand, these Jewish teachers are absolutely right. If this fellow, as they call him, is just that, a fellow human, then he is blaspheming. He's a man pretending to be God, putting himself in the place of God, which according to Jewish law and tradition uh, is an evil act. So can you see the irony then as Jesus now flips the accusation of evil around and places it firmly on them? In verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Jesus knows what they're thinking. And just as he saw the faith or the belief, if you like, of the paralysed man and his friends, he now sees the hard-hearted unbelief of these Jewish teachers and so this question to them probes beyond their muttering talk of blasphemy to the evil that lies in their hearts. Because Jesus isn't just a man pretending to be God. He is God. All his miracles he'd been doing are powerful demonstrations of that. But they just couldn't see it or else refused to believe it. They don't recognise who Jesus is, so Jesus proceeds to help them see. And he does so firstly by setting these well-studied scholars a little exam. It's a very short exam of the best possible kind, if you ask me, multiple choice. He says, verse 5, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Who likes it when a test that you have to do turns out to be multiple choice? 
Yeah, I do. And even better when there's only two choices, right? There's a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Okay, so let's sit the exam. What's easier to say to a paralysed person? A, your sins are forgiven, or B, get up and walk. So if you had a paralysed person in, lying in front of you right now, what would be easier for you to say? Well, the answer, of course, is A, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. No one would know if what you said had actually happened, right? But if you said, get up and walk, and they didn't or they couldn't, everyone would know you're a phony. So yes, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. But what if we rephrase the question, what's easier to do? That's really what he's asking here. Because for Jesus, say and do are one and the same. He acts by merely speaking. Uh, most recently in Matthew, by casting out demons with one word, go. So the question he really poses to them is what's easier to do? Think about that for a minute. It's not so easy to answer, is it? That's because only God can forgive sins and only by God's power can a paralysed person be instantly healed with a word. Well, Jesus doesn't wait for an answer from these teachers. He moves on to the next part of his lesson. He wants them uh, and the others watching and us here today to know something profoundly important about who he really is and what he came to do. Verse 6. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We've arrived at the central verse uh, in our passage. It's, it's the big idea that Matthew wants us to grasp, uh, which is evident by the way he's structured his gospel. Jesus' authority has been the recurring theme, hasn't it, in the past few chapters. And now here in chapter 9, he presents us with Jesus' claim to have authority to forgive sins. And I notice Jesus here refers to himself, as he often does, by the term the Son of Man. In the Bible, this can mean, um, just mean an ordinary human being. Uh, but elsewhere, it's a title loaded with this idea of divine authority. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, in chapter 7, it describes a heavenly vision where a mysterious Son of Man figure is ushered into the presence of God the Ancient of Days, where he's given authority, glory, sovereign power, and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So Son of Man, in this sense, is another name for God's promised Messiah, an eternal king, who will one day come and put an end to all sin and its symptoms, once and for all. So Jesus' use of this title for himself is intentional, and it's profound. And it makes sense of what we've been seeing in Matthew's gospel. If he is the promised king, then for some reason he's arrived early on earth, teaching about his coming kingdom and bringing a foretaste of it by demonstrating his authority over many symptoms of sin, as we've seen through chapter 8. 
But now in chapter 9, we're presented with his claim to have authority to deal with the root cause of these things. Sin itself, the authority on earth to forgive sins. It's really, it's a staggering claim. It's a claim to be God. It's a claim he's now going to verify for all to see by means of a practical demonstration, the final part of his lesson. Notice uh, how Jesus in verse 6 breaks off his sentence to the teachers of the law and turns again to speak to the man lying at his feet. I'll read it again. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat and go home. His words to the man are a, a rich blend of divine authority and loving gentleness. And so with all eyes watching to see what will happen, verse 7, then the man got up and went home. With just a word from Jesus, his paralysis was gone. Whatever damage it had caused his muscles and joints over the months or years of his condition, fully healed in an instant. His shriveled legs sprang to life, and up he stood and out he walked with his bed mat in his hand. You can imagine him uh, leaping as, you, as he went out, can't you? Oh, what a feeling! I can. His great need had been met, but so had his much greater need. Though he may not have uh, realised the importance of it at the time, his physical healing would, have, would assure him that his ultimate healing had taken place, that his sins really were forgiven. At the same time, his healing also refuted the charge of blasphemy. God would never grant his healing power to a blasphemer. So Jesus' claim is vindicated. He really does have authority on earth to forgive sins because he is God here on earth. And that should come as no surprise to us. Matthew told us back in chapter 1, quoting Isaiah, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that he was to be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is God with us, come to save his people from their sins, from our sins. How? Well, of course, by taking our sin on himself and dying in our place on the cross. That's what our sins deserve. That's how serious it is to wrong an infinitely holy and good God. And I hope, friends, that we can see the wonder of this. That the very God we've wronged has come to us in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. The one who will one day judge all sin has come early. Not to judge, but to forgive us. To bear the penalty we deserve so that we can be forgiven. So that our relationship with him can be restored and so that we can enjoy him forever. Such is his great love for us. 
We have one final verse to consider as we close. Verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. It seems the crowd still didn't quite get who he was, does it? A man with authority from God. But even so, watching on from a distance, they were filled with awe and praised God. But if that's their response, how much more will we who draw near to Jesus and are forgiven stand in awe and praise of him with thankful hearts forever? The question is, coming out of this, have you come to see that your greatest need is to be forgiven for your sins? Have you come to Jesus to be healed, lying at his feet, so to speak, humbly and expectantly? If so, he sees your faith. He knows the thoughts of your heart. He knows your sin. If you're here today and you've never come to Jesus for forgiveness, you can today, right now. Or maybe you've come to Jesus earlier in life, but you've since wandered far from him. He's calling you back to him today. And he welcomes you with open arms, regardless of what you've done. And his words to you are full of grace and mercy, authority and gentleness. And he says to you, take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus' words of forgiveness are still surprising today, but not in a disappointing way. The exact opposite. When we've really come to see our sin for what it is, and how undeserving we are of the forgiveness he freely offers, these words are surprising because they seem too good to be true. But they are true. They're wonderfully true. Finally, for us who have come to know this forgiveness ourselves, well, you know, we'll naturally want others to have their deepest need met too, won't we? We want more than anything else for our family and friends. We want this for our neighbours. We want this for little Holly and all our precious kids. We want that for our community. We want it for the people of Gulwa. That's why we plan to plant a church there too, to bring this message of forgiveness to more people who desperately need it right across the Flurio region, so that many more people will stand with us in awe and praise of the God who forgives. Let me pray for us. 
Oh, Father, our great God, thank you for your extravagant love for us in Jesus, for meeting our deepest need with your great gift of forgiveness, full and free forgiveness, free for us, but yet so costly for you. You gave your only son, who gave up his life so that we can be forgiven and restored in relationship with you forever. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.